Hey, Getting Momentum community. We hope you are having a lovely summer. And the last couple of months since the season ended, we are looking forward to gearing up for season three in September. In the meantime, we wanted to offer up this re-release of Aging and Mortality because as we know, it's been a very long year and a half. And depending on where you are, things are either looking up or maybe not looking so good. But either way, I know we've all been doing a lot of reflecting on aging and on mortality. So we hope this episode adds to the conversations that you're having. Take care. Welcome to the Gaining Momentum Podcast with your hosts, Abby and Megan. This is the podcast where we try our best to parent our kids for the world we want them to grow up in and the world we live in now. to introduce the first guest of the Gaining Momentum season and ever really. Mm-hmm. Today we will be joined by my father Femi and his partner Susan. Thank you so much for joining us guys. We're so excited to have you on Gaining Momentum. Yes, thank you. We are very excited. You are our inaugural guests. Inaugural. That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. That's why we that's why we're co-hosts. So today <laughs> our topic will be aging and mortality. Mm-hmm. And we are going to be talking to my dad and Susan about that, both in their professional capacity, which we will get into, and just in their personal lives as parents and grandparents. So first question, I will start with you, dad, and then Susan, if you want to jump in. What do the terms aging and mortality mean to you? Aging is a process that starts at the moment of conception for humans and uh, continues forever and ever and ever. And uh, one of the terms is, it's inexorable. It keeps going on. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't stop it. So it's a given. Therefore, you accept it. Mortality, it's uh, one of those things. In other words, death. And I always say that uh, it's the thing that defines life. So the only things that don't die are things that don't live. Mm. Oh, well played, That's Dad. powerful. I'm still, I think that needs to go on a t-shirt for some <laughs> pod merch. <laughs> and Susan, what do the terms mean to you? Uh, yeah, I would, I would just say that I think, although it is inexorable that we are aging and dying, there is such a lot of fear and dread and taboo around it and around talking about it and being open about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what kind of comes to my mind when we think about it, that yes, we're, we are, we're aging, we're dying, we are mortals, but we're, we're afraid. We're mm-hmm. not prepared usually, I think, for it. So yeah, uh, yeah, there's that, there's that other side to it. I'm glad that you brought that up. I think that's something that we kind of want to dig into in this conversation, you know, talking a little bit about where that lives and why that's there for people. So we will maybe circle back to that for sure. So tell us a little bit about your professional experience in this field, the field of aging, death, dying, mortality. Whoever wants to start. <laughs> uh, well, maybe I'll start because mine is not um, is not a profession in the sense of a training and so on. But for the last, oh, I would say five to 10 years, 
uh, just based on a lot of people in my life dying all at once. I did a deep dive into the whole process of dying and uh, studied it and started running workshops on what I called the art of dying, just to bring the conversation into the room. So yeah. groups of people, you know, small groups of people, about 12 each time, and uh, wrote a guidebook about it and just wanted to normalize the conversation about dying because people held it in such dread and so helped to prepare documents and that kind of thing, get people ready so yeah. that they, as Femi said earlier, so that they could live uh, without having that you know, big dread over their shoulders. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been my experience. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a follow-up because you are talking about the dread and I'm wondering if in your experience doing that work, you've come to kind of siphon out where that dread lives. Like what, why is that there for people? Do you think? Yeah, well, we, I, I think it's, I think it's human nature in a way, you know, that uh, we, we like to live with the illusion that it's forever. It's hard to think that it's not. So we, well, it's the denial of death was Ernest Becker's term for it, you know, and mm -hmm. he said it was very human and we all have it to, to a certain extent, mm -hmm. but that we can at least exacerbate how difficult it is by talking about it, by being open about it and coming to understand it. And of course, there are world religions that have dealt with dying, the Buddhists and so on mm -hmm. for centuries and know a lot more about it than we in the West do. We tend, I think, to have the highest levels of dread mm -hmm. uh, because we're, you know, it's hell and all that kind of <laughs> stuff we're brought up with. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's a bit of it. I love that that's the way that you came at it, that you were experiencing this in your own life or with the people around you. And instead of shrinking away from it and being fearful, you decided to arm yourself with information and then share that information with others. That's really, really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it has helped me. Of course, it, you know, I had a selfish motive. It was, I wanted to talk about it. I actually started by having what I called death and dining dinners. <laughs> where I would invite people to dinner, but I would have like a conversation about dying. And so that's really where it, it got started was, you know, I wanted to talk about it and I had to have people to talk about it with. So that's, that's how it unfolded. I think that's very unbrand un for gaining momentum because I think that's even how Abby and I started our project was there were things that we wanted to talk about and sometimes they're hard things to talk about but we wanted to kind of build a community and normalize, you know, those topics that sometimes people shy away from or don't feel comfortable talking about. So that's very on brand for us. I like that. Great. <laughs> and dad, where did you come at it? I know you're retired now, as you like to remind me often that you may have to hit me up for, for some funds in the future. <laughs> but professionally, what was your experience with aging and mortality? Well, I'm a psychiatrist, mm -hmm. most specifically, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. So I, in my professional life, I work with older people. So the question of aging was very paramount to my practice. Mm -hmm. Understanding the process of aging and especially the changes that occur with us as we age. And then of course, recognition that we die. My connection with death, especially my own mortality, mm -hmm. was something that happened during my training. Because I had a very bad accident in which I lost a very good friend. Mm. And, uh, in that accident, 
So whether I liked it or not, I mean, I had known people, family members who had died before, but that's something that happened out there. Mm-hmm. And you are in the same car with somebody who died, you mm-hmm. know, so you, you kind of say that could have been me. And then, you know, with a series of operations, you say, wow, that could have been me. So there's a direct confrontation. And then of course, I got in touch with part of me that recognized that death is something that will happen to any of us. And then in training, I got introduced into the concept of existentialism, mm-hmm. which makes us recognize that death is you know, one of those things we have to deal with. And as Susan was saying earlier, the, actually that's interesting because when Susan and I first met, she was reading the denial of death and I had read the denial of death by Ernest Becker. So it provided a basis for, for the discussion of death. <laughs> don't Dinner know. and death. Dinner and a little death exactly. chat. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner and so, death date. <laughs> exactly. Death it's, it was yeah. a dinner and death date. That <laughs> yeah. So that, that was that. And um, the only thing I'll kind of say here is, I mean, when people talk psychiatry, I know they, 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 they talk about uh, Freud and uh, the basic anxieties that Freud talk about. Mm-hmm. The existentialists also mention that a much more basic anxiety is the fear of death, mm-hmm. which all of us have to deal with mm-hmm. and that we deal with it in very, very many ways. All of us deal with it. Some of us build, build our empires to make sure that our name stays on forever mm-hmm. so that we don't die. Mm-hmm. Some people put on trusts to keep their names on forever. That's one way of making sure they don't die, but we all die. Oh, wow. That was like kind of a mind blowing point for me. This idea of building an empire to live on in an infinite way through your, you know, what you've accumulated or what your legacy is, or even through, you know, your family and your children through, through all of those relationships as well. That's a powerful sentiment. I think this podcast is now part of our empire, Meg. We're leaving I know. behind for our kids. <laughs> Absolutely. So I know it forever. <laughs> I never thought I would be an imperialist, but here we are. <laughs> Those are really heavy, but also, as you're saying, um, in this effort to normalize, trying to be not so heavy about this topic. But I'm curious about in your work that you both just talked about, how do you take care of yourselves? How do you make sure that you're okay in engaging with people's fears and anxieties around a topic that can sometimes be really tricky. For me, the basic way is to accept that uh, once I accepted the fact that I'm not an immortal, <laughs> then, uh, it made life easier. Yeah. So, because I know I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes enjoy your life and the people around you as much as you can until you die. Mm-hmm. So Accepting that makes every day a little bit more interesting Mm -hmm. because you know you never live that day again and uh, you don't even know if you're going to live the next one. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm constantly saying, oh, no, I'm going to die tomorrow. No, Mm -hmm. but it just means that things become more important Mm. and more important to you. Your friends, your family become more important to you. On that note, I just want to say, as things are becoming important, and as you like to say, I'm your favorite daughter, (laughs) 
can I start claiming some things that I would like to have? <laughs> well, you know, you know what they say that love conquers all. So, so I give you my love completely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I guess I'll happily take that too. <laughs> the ultimate gift, Abby. <laughs> Legacy of love. You're almost choking me up there. Just even connecting in with some of our mental health stuff around anxiety and stress and the the daily, you know, challenges, whether it's in parenthood or just life, there is something very powerful about that perspective that kind of puts things into focus a little bit, like almost as a coping strategy that, you know, this is the one life and we don't know what tomorrow brings. The like proverbial, like sweating the small stuff is maybe <laughs> something that we need to be mindful of and also as like a tool for being okay as we move through our day to day. I'm gonna sit with that for a bit, that's powerful. Yeah, I was getting a little bit choked up hearing you talk about that, Dad, because, mm -hmm. you know, we're having this conversation and it's an important conversation to have, but also you're my dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't really like to think about you not mm -hmm. being here at some point. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I will always be here in you. Oh. <laughs> Femi. <laughs> straight through my heart <laughs> but susan i want to make sure that we give you a chance to talk about what do you do for self-care when you're running these conversations and these workshops and how do you take care of yourself after i um i, I was going to say my dad had a most wonderful expression uh in his mid-90s he would say if i wake up breathing it's a win and oh, i always mm. thought that was you know that that kind of gratitude is I think where I've landed that I've seen so many people die that just not being one of those people is a gift. And mm. so is every single day, you know, if you wake up breathing, it's a win. Mm. And, uh, and so my, um, my, my self-care is really feeling good about being in service to the conversation. And I find it invigorating as opposed to depleting because I get so much out of the conversation, so much learning from other people, uh, so many gifts of their perspectives. And I find that really reinforces my, my gratitude for life, just for being here. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna interject a quick moment of levity. I told my child, your grandkid, that I would be speaking with you guys today. And of course he wanted to insert himself in the conversation because as we know, <laughs> he always has things to say. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me a question to ask you guys. I told him, I'm going to be talking to grandpa and granny today about getting older. Is there anything you want to ask them? And so his question was, why do things get harder as you get older? Oh man, that Good. brilliant child of yours. <laughs> I mean, he's probably just talking about tying his shoes, but I feel like it still works for this conversation. It does. <laughs> Why do things get harder as you get older? Mm -hmm. hmm. He needs his own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't know. I. Good question. It's a very, very good question. Very deep question, actually, mm -hmm. because uh, I'm thinking and say, saying that things got more difficult probably because we now know more of the options that are available and that the more choices you have, the more difficult it is actually 
to make a choice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because then you have to consider and then probably because we know more then the implication of our actions are also more obvious to us and to people around and therefore the consequences of our actions are out there which is one of the reasons we protect minors and uh, say that uh, you know minors are not at that age where they can cognitively make all the decisions i mean that's just my off the top of the head mm. that's pretty good that's pretty yeah. good <laughs> it's pretty spot on <laughs> yeah i i'd add that uh for me that you know the physical stuff obviously gets harder you cannot do what you used to do and certainly uh, over 70 you start to notice that quite a bit <laughs> it just gets harder on the other hand we're living healthier, younger, longer than, you know, I was thinking about my grandparents the other day and they were like at 70, mm-hmm. they were old, like really old. Mm-hmm. And I'm 74 in my 75th years, I like to say, and like, I'm healthy, you know, mm-hmm. I'm walking every day. I'm, I have no pain. I'm in good shape. Mm-hmm. And so it, from that point of view, I think it's probably easier that and and I think as Femi says, there's um I don't know, I don't think we want to get into it too deeply, but there's a spiritual aspect to it that you begin to realize that there's a whole inner world that is opening up as you turn that corner in midlife that mm. that is a uh it's a it's a salve for your for any of the of the downsides of getting older, I think. So I'm not sure what would make of that answer but <laughs> that's what happened <laughs> I like the way that that sort of that you both you link together there sort of this idea of like brain development though and our capacity and as we are when we're small and we have like a underdeveloped frontal lobe we're not you know cause and effect reasoning and you know all of those consequential parts of our thinking are less in the forefront which makes life easier, right? When we're small, but then as we move into adulthood and then Susan, just like, you know, you're talking about this other part of our mind and our spiritual learning that maybe cracks open when we get to a certain place in our development and our life, which I think is actually really a peaceful thing to bring in when we're fearful of death or we're fearful of aging. If we can think about that there's something coming as we age that is really special and exciting if we haven't had that happen for us in our younger adulthood or throughout our life yet so i actually find that to be a very like peaceful and like calming idea i feel like you guys are offering so many nuggets that are like helpful to me personally in this conversation so i'm hoping our listeners will also have some of those takeaways as well and i think while we're talking about it, we've been talking a lot about kind of, well, dancing around a bit, the taboos that people hold around talking about aging, around talking about mortality. And I just was wondering if there are any themes or habits that you've noticed that people seem to hold on to or exhibit when they're approaching discussing these topics or going through these topics and you're observing them. Yeah, they used to say that, uh, well, I mean, you know, when I was younger, they talk about aging as the golden ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not golden. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still looking for the pot of gold. <laughs> but uh, more seriously, though, uh, as Susan says, a lot of things are easier as we get older. Not just for us as individuals, but for us as a cohort. 
Mm. You know, we we our cohort happens to be one of the lucky groups that have benefited from those before us. They've cre they created a world that made it easier for us to recognize the value of education and moving up. Uh, fortunately for me, one of the things that I look back and feel sad about is that that life is not as easy for our children. In what ways? They, well, for instance, when I was growing up, the path was straightforward. You go to school, you go to university. If you can do it, you get out, you get a decent job, you get your choices of jobs, you, you make a good living. Now, you can go to university, you can be very hardworking, and the gap between those who actually have vis-a-vis -vis the efforts they put in and then those who don't have vis-a-vis -vis the effort they put in, the gap is too much. So that for me, as I get older, is, it makes me sad mm. seeing that. And I hope that things will, get, will somehow get better for our grandchildren mm. because we need to live a life where they can advance and enjoy. The kind of things we enjoyed. So I don't know if I'm. I don't yeah, know if, no, I've, if I've kind of rambled around a bit. <laughs> That's also very on brand because you know our whole tagline is we're trying to parent for the world we live in now and the world that we want uh, our kids to grow up in and to live in. I actually got those backwards, but you get the sentiment <laughs> um, uh, for tomorrow. And so it really does link really nicely, actually, into some of the reasons why we're even here to have these discussions. So you're really hitting on some of that where it's, we do see that gap widening. So how do we ensure that we close it for moving forward uh, for our own kids? Well, yeah, like they say in like the London underground tube system, mind the gap. Yeah, totally. Mind the gap. Mind that, the gap. that might be our new tagline, mind the gap, <laughs> how do we close it? The equity gap. And what have you seen, Susan? Yeah, I think that's, I think similarly, um, you know, I feel that we are in such a privileged position, not only with regard to the generations coming after us, but we know, you know, all the hardship and horror in the world and what a privileged place in it we stand in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm also aware of that, that we've got it easy. We've got it made, you know, we, we have had our work life, we've been successful, we've managed to amass enough to keep us going so that we're, we're comfortable and life is good. I mean, it, it really is good. And, and yet there is the pain of the larger good and seeing that it is not equitable and not everyone has access to the privileges we do. And you guys have talked about that quite a bit, I know. Uh, but just to, yeah, put that on the table. Mm. Yeah, I don't want it to sound all pessimistic <laughs> <laughs> because we also see a lot of good things that are happening, mm -hmm. especially recently, the awareness of inequalities. People banding together to fight what they consider unequal, to fight against, uh, well, say, racism, for instance, mm -hmm. I just sent my daughter and my kids 
uh, some info that Black Lives Matter as a group has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition, I, I hope they get it, but yeah. in recognition of their, because the movement has spread all over the world. It's not just Black Lives, but and a term that I first heard from my daughter, BIPOC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that, uh, you know, that whole group, everything. So it means that awareness is there now. Mm-hmm. And the young folks nowadays know a whole lot more than we did. <laughs> so that, and that gives me a lot of hope. Do you think that, you know, this sort of social justice awakening moment that we're in, do you think it has an impact on the way that people think about something like more, their own mortality or death and dying? Just to, to sort of link those things together. Do you think it, yeah, how does that sort of change the way that people think about their own life and what they do with their own life and what that means for them in their own mortality? Uh, I've just, um, I did a some of these conversation circles. I did a couple of them uh, this spring on, I called it healing our broken world, but it was basically on racial justice. Mm -hmm. And again, wanting to bring that conversation to the table. What I found was awakening is the right word for sure. I think Mm -hmm. a big, big wake up for people. Uh, I did one here in Canada, Canada and another in the US with, Mm -hmm. you know, people from the different countries. And I thought there might be quite large gaps, again, in in the level of conversation, but it was very, very similar and uh, ended up with people really wanting to make a difference, feeling so grateful and so committed to action. It's like suddenly it's not good enough even to just be aware, you know, you've got to really do something. And I, I see that as quite hopeful that uh, we're, we're not only waking up, but we're starting to show up and, uh, and, and make some things happen, you know. Put that on the t-shirt, Abby. Yeah. Wait. We're not just waking up. We're starting to show up. That's I like what... that. Susan, woo, goosebumps. I know, I know. And I think like what you're speaking to there when we're talking about like just thinking about our lives and what it all means and even this idea of death and dying is about purpose and what we are spending our time doing and what we are committing our time here to. And is it uh, full of purpose in a way that, you know, creates equity or brings us towards a better future for everybody? That is true. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, I'm going to go back to my existential roots again. Do it, <laughs> Let's do, do it. it. Let's do it, Femi. Let's get and, existential. <laughs> yeah, and say that, uh, you know, people used to talk about the meaning of life. And I'm, and I'm not talking about meaning of life in terms of the, what's that uh, British show? <laughs> <laughs> the life of the I was going to say Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, Monty Python, yeah. Not, not in that context. But that, that's something that we're all searching for. And it makes one thing. If I live a good life, if I'm enjoying and my children are not, and my grandchildren are not, and their grandchildren are not, what meaning do I derive from my life? So shouldn't my life be meaningful if the people who come after me are happy? Mm. If I'm happy and the people who come after me are not, what kind of life have I lived? Because we should only live things better than when we started. So that's my way of thinking of it as, okay, whatever you do now, 
think of it in terms of whether it's your way of denying death by making life better for others or your way of denying death by creating a degree of equity mm-hmm. you know whichever way at least that's one of the ways i look at it i mean you're talking you're starting to talk about you know thinking about your children and your grandchildren and i'm curious when you start to talk about that when you became a parent or even a grandparent did you see a shift in your relationship to these ideas around death and dying? I was a lot more careful. Mm. I think until I had my son, it was a pretty carefree life. Uh, Not (laughs) much thought. I mean, partly just the age, you know, but I think I got a lot more careful and I think the same thing happened with my grandchildren. I got a lot more careful again. Just, uh, I think more, more, thoughtful about you know the seven generations kind of idea that mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're not just flailing anymore you you do have purpose and you have responsibility with that purpose and it, it puts some some binders on mostly quite welcome I think because of that because you're you're thinking beyond you know mm-hmm. certainly uh, having having grandchildren, uh, has done that a lot for me. Yeah, it's a, well, clearly it, it changes things for you. I mean, at least for me, it changed things. I have three kids. Um, what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm only aware of two. <laughs> breaking news, guys, breaking news. Yeah. This is where we choose to disclose that. Yeah. Oh, well. Sorry, you have two brothers. <laughs> yeah. And when the, as the grandchildren arrive one by one, there is a kind of, not only, well, there's that desire to enjoy them mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. Because when, when the kids arrived, I was busy trying to make a living, <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to had to build a career. Mm-hmm. You know, time to play was weekend when, I'm, when I wasn't on call. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in my own particular case, because I didn't, I did not live with the parent. I mean, with their mom, to the till they grew up. So I had those brief periods of time with them later, which became very important to me. Mm-hmm. So with the grandchildren, I also want to spend time with them to enjoy them, not necessarily physically, you know grabbing them from their parents and say no 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 that's cool i'm open that's to that fine you can do that you can take mine too while you're at it Honorary. i want to have that emotional connection and enjoy them mm-hmm. and i think uh, susan has made that very easy for me to do and i enjoy that in terms of death i don't think so much about death because I don't want it to be there constantly in my life because it is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm not thinking about it. I, I mean, it's already it's determined that I will. When is, this, is the timing? And uh, since I don't know when, I want to enjoy them. I just hope that I'll have a chance for them to get to know me. Yeah, uh, that's. I appreciate that so much. And I also want to just kind of mention what you said, Dad, about how Susan has made that easier. And I appreciate that because I think Susan's absolutely helped build. You guys have such a strong bond with my child, with your grandchild. And I really appreciate that because it's just so easy and it makes all of us so happy. So thanks for that, Susan. 
You're so welcome. Thank what you. a joy. What a joy. <laughs> I think one of the things that has, uh, I don't know, it, I was going to say surprised me, and I guess that's, that's true enough, uh, has surprised me is that I didn't really think of myself as somebody who played a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did. I did what kids do. As And as a mom, I think, like Femi said, I, I was really busy. Like I was, you know, out and about and doing my thing. And it's only becoming a grandmother that has really allowed me to get in touch with that thing about play. And mm. it's so great, you know. Uh, my grandparents, I, I spent summers with them most of my life, but they didn't play. They didn't ever get down on the floor or build puzzles or sand castles or go swimming with me or any of the things that I have done with my grandkids that I have enjoyed so much. So anyway, it's, um, it's, it's one of the great, great delights of this age is uh, the good fortune to have wonderful children and grandchildren who welcome you. I mean, I can't imagine how awful it would be not to be welcomed, you know, as a as a grandparent into the fold, so to speak. So I'm I'm grateful. I think that's interesting too, because you both became parents at a relatively young age. Susan, you were 20. Is that right? Uh, just over, yeah. And dad, you were 25, which like I didn't become a parent till 35. So it's interesting too, because you guys were still, like you said, building your professional career and finding your own identities at the same time that you were thrust into this role of parenthood. That is well said. Now you forgive. <laughs> I forget, dad. I forget. I was very young. <laughs> but I think there is something powerful in that when we hear you speak about your experience as uh, grandparents versus parents, because obviously we don't have that experience yet, that makes me stop and pause around, okay, well, I would want to make sure that, you know, if I can, I'm taking that time to play now as a parent as well, because I'm kind of hearing it in your voice. It's not that it's like regret, but it's sort of like there is this thing that we're doing as parents where we're just trying to get through the day. We're trying to do our jobs. We're trying to get food on the table, bedtime, you know, the grind of daily life Mm -hmm. and making sure that that doesn't necessarily always get in the way of play and sort of connection and all those things, especially during a year like this year Mm -hmm. where the days bleed together and everything feels very hard. And sometimes I will say for myself as a parent, I definitely have taken for granted some of this year with my children because there are hard moments, Mm -hmm. but it has me taking pause a little bit when I hear you look back and reflect in that way. Yeah. I I mean, if uh, one of my go-to excuses was if I go and buy a fridge, okay, a software or something, Mm -hmm. it comes with a set of instructions. (laughs) Man, those kids don't have any... (laughs) They sure don't. <laughs> no, no manual. No manual. And they are even, they're, they're, they're better than artificial intelligence. Because they are that. As you think you mastered one piece, they come up with another. <laughs> Adapting yeah. and morphing as you go along. So, I mean, if I'm to tell any parent, I say, hey, you know what? You're doing the best you can. That's the most important thing. Thank you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that one felt like it was like it's speaking directly to us. That's something yeah. we need to remind ourselves of <laughs> for <you>. sure. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to make gaining momentum that manual sometimes, but it's yeah. more just a, it's more of a journey together <laughs> and trying to collectively figure out how to do this thing in the yeah. way that we want to. Right, right. It's uh, making the path by walking it. Yes. yes. In your yeah. case. Another t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole excuse for this episode is just to generate merchandise. So merchandise. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one of the things I found so hard this year is being separated from my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of the opposite. If you've had too much, I've had too little. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's just, it feels like, gosh, you know, time is short when you're this age mm-hmm. and you're, you know, watching friends kind of go, um, come mm-hmm. and go. It, it uh, Time is short. And so I feel like, you know, it's kind of been yanked away this mm-hmm. whole year of, uh, anyway. Hopefully, we're uh, we're going to get out of it fairly soon. Yes, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. I personally, like, I didn't really ever think about my mortality until I became a parent. And then it just was like immediately hit me. And I just remember having this fear, like one night, I actually remember the moment, like sitting there holding my kid uh, very, very late at night <laughs> and just sort of thinking to myself, oh, I don't ever want to die because I never want to leave this child. I never want to be without him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering if you guys have any ideas or advice on how you would approach talking to children about aging and about mortality. I, I have a reference to a really good book. <laughs> we love a good book. We love a good resource on gaining momentum. All right. It's called Cry Heart But Never Die. Oh. And it's Death Coming to Call at the kitchen table with the grandmother up in the bedroom. And uh, it's a very, very sweet book and very instructive for children uh, to normalize dying. And um, so it's one I've recommended to many grandparents, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it just it just normalizes the dying process and the fact that it's, uh, you know, the grandma flies away in the end and it's okay. Mm. And uh, so for me, it it is normalizing. It's allowing them to see. Uh, When my grandmother died, I wasn't allowed to see. I was Mm. put in the back room. It was it was um, it was not a good closure. So I think there is something to be said for allowing it to happen and allowing your children to be as involved as age appropriate, obviously. Mm. But and if it's sudden, then it's sudden and it's a loss and there's not much you can do. But if it's more gradual, I think it's important for kids to, just as they see us aging, to also see us dying if, if that's what's up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so that they can, uh, they can process it as it goes along and not be cut off somehow. And do you think that fear or that um, habit maybe historically to try to shield kids from the idea of death and dying, like, does, do you think that lives mostly with our own fear or the own fear that people carry with themselves? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, well, a lot of your audience are going to be Canadian, North Americans, mm. but they also there's a lot of uh, multicultural component in Canada. So there is no one way of looking at death per se. Different cultures have different ways of looking at death. Uh, I'm originally from Nigeria, as you know, but we 
uh, growing up, I know that there were deaths. And when uh, the, the way you know that there's a death in the small town is the wailing of people on the streets. So you kind of associate that wailing, people crying and wailing and, you know, pounding on themselves as somebody has died. Mm. I don't remember the age when I realized that, but I was very young that when there's the wailing out there, then it means somebody has died. And then uh, you know that you don't see that person anymore. And then the funeral parade that that went through the small town, you know, meant that that person is never going to be seen again. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the way you know whether the dead person, the family member, would be that as the as the wailing got closer to the home, it it's picked up, it was picked up by you know family members. Then you knew that person was a relative. Mm-hmm. So otherwise, instead of just being sympathetic, you joined the wailing. So mm-hmm. you knew that the loss was right at home with you. So mm-hmm. that was my childhood experience. And then of course, a lot of that got washed away in medical school, <laughs> because you can't wail every day. <laughs> <laughs> There's no wailing in medical school. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. So I don't know. Would I discuss it with my grandchildren? I don't know. But the, my, the aging part was probably easier because when my grandson, the one in Vancouver, when my grandson comes to play, he wants to play for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on my knees, and then the knees start to hurt, and then you find that you have to keep getting up. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, so you have to say, hey, kid, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my grandson probably associates my inability to do certain things with aging. <laughs> so but I, the- I I was going to say, that's that normalizing again, though, I think, like not shying away from this is real and this is what it is. And it doesn't mean that grandpa can't be fun and play and be such a powerful part of life. But this is what happens. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, you can still do what you're doing. But uh, when you can't do it, you have to explain it. (laughs) Luckily, we have Paw Patrol for that. Don't get me started on Paw Patrol. Oh, as our listeners say, are... Luckily oh, for you God. guys, but then he comes home and all he wants to talk about is Paw Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're supposed to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. I've been noticing lately with my youngest, because we did go through this with my with my older, my kids are eight and three, well, just about nine and three at this point. There's a bit of an obsession around death right now with my littlest. So there's a real like reckoning and like sort of just deep curiosity about what 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 does that mean and because we have had loss in our family and there's gaps in like the parental structure and grandparent structure yeah just this sort of like frank blunt curiosity that seems to just keep coming up all the and even if we talk about somebody he's trying to make sense of are they dead are they is is so and so dead or are they alive and so i've been yeah it's been interesting i have a little bit of experience from my older child having dug into similar things but sort of bumbling through that as a young parent um not not exactly knowing ex- you know the right thing to say but i feel comforted in the way that you're talking about normalizing and just kind of confronting and talking 
you know, honestly and frankly about what that means in, and that we all, you know, and then there is this piece where then they start to think about their own mortality in an interesting way. Like, am I dead or am I alive? Like as a little three-year-old and trying to make sense of that with them. So I don't have the answers, but I, I, I feel like we're on the right track with this idea of normalizing and just sort of having this, the discussion. In the younger days in my kids' days, younger mm -hmm. days, one way we did that was uh, everybody had a, a pet gerbil or pet parakeet, mm -hmm. <laughs> and those pets do have ways of dying. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, it sounds like you went Dr. Kevorkian on our pet <laughs> Well, I thought I thought they all went to the farm. What do you mean? <laughs> so that's one way that we introduced the idea that hey, it's it's lying there in the cage, not moving. We call that dead. <laughs> You're never gonna see it again. And then you go through the the procedure of burial in the backyard, mm -hmm. and the final goodbye. Except for my one fish that I think it was like you, dad, got me fish for Christmas or birthday or something when yeah. I was in grade eight. And this was a fish named Nightcrawler. And it <laughs> did, it lived for like eight years. Like it lived until after I went away to university. So I think it didn't die. And I think my mom finally was just tired of being responsible for it because <laughs> I was away at university. So I think he might have just been flushed. But like <laughs> I was like halfway through university at least until this before this fish decided that it was time to go. I feel like this is going to be where a reveal comes, where Femi's like, actually, that was not the same fish. And we continuously <laughs> oh, replace no, that. It fish. was. It absolutely was. Because I was the one, it was in grade eight. So I was the one who took care of that fish and cleaned the aquarium and stuff. <laughs> Trust me, I, by the end, I was like, come on, why is this fish still why here? Are you still alive? <laughs> I had the opposite role where I was like, wishing for death. <laughs> but that's a great, great idea, though, around pets and just sort of like using those more lower those lower stakes losses I guess as a place of learning and practice around and I love even what you're saying Femi about like ritual and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know rooted in a particular faith or whatever that looks like for you for you even in your own familial practice like figure out what that ritual means for you in your family when these things happen exactly yeah exactly uh, I feel like that might be a good place to wrap things up. Do either of you, Dad or Susan, have any final thoughts that you want to share with the Gaining Momentum community? <laughs> well, just that this has been great. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And we, as I said earlier, we are great followers of your program. Even though Thank we don't you. have kids now, but we have grandchildren. We've enjoyed the what you guys have been discussing, the advices, and uh, please continue. Well, I'm leaving this in. I'm not cutting this out. <laughs> no, this is, we're definitely, this is the promo right here. <laughs> thank you guys so much. It's been such a pleasure. Yes, thank you. We appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to having more of these conversations with you guys off the mic. Okay. Indeed. Bye, Megan. Bye. Bye. time for us to pause for momentum. So many questions. Were you ever a kid? When 10 is 50 is 80. Why is getting older hard? A concept that changes as we age. What does died mean? So many questions. I have so few answers. If I'm feeling overloaded, responses may be delayed, but like me, they will never be absent. Go ahead, 
ask me about life. My kid days are long gone, but I will try to think like one to give what you need to know and marvel and wonder with you. Right here, right now. How do I explain why I'm so upset? Why when you don't listen, it sets me on edge. How do I explain that time is both limitless and finite? Time will continue on, but I won't. So I need to cram as much as I can into each moment, teach you everything I know, everything I knew, and everything in between. I don't know how long I have or how old I'll be. I do know that I have right here, right now. I want you to be okay when I'm gone. I want you to have everything that I had to give you. So when you don't listen, it feels like I'm failing you, leaving you unprepared and leaving you ill-equipped. I want to stay here with you forever, but that's not how life works. I don't know why life is or why my days will end. I do know that I have right here, right now. Every day you get a little bit older. So do I, so does everyone, except the people who don't. Aging doesn't bother me. It never really has. But since you came out of my body and into the world, what bothers me is mortality. Now I bargain for more time to watch you grow, to see who you'll become, to continue loving you as you are. I don't know who will be or who will be there. I do know that I have right here, right now. It's the randomness of it that scares me. On any given day, at any given time, any given thing could happen. It's too much to process, so I strive to remain focused on the joys of watching you age, seeing you grow each day, mentally, physically, emotionally. And I keep growing right along with you. I don't know what will happen or what I'll be. I do know that I have right here, right now. We acknowledge that Gaining Momentum is recorded, produced, and edited on the unceded territory of the Selic Okanagan people and the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Enina, Oji Cree, Dena, and Dakota peoples, and on the homeland of the Metis Nation. Gaining Momentum. Gaining hosted Megan and Abby. With artwork by Catherine Katja. With music by Evan Dysart. Please check our show notes with each episode for more information on Catherine and Evan, plus how you can stay in touch with us through email, Instagram, and Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you.